Welcome friends to the kindergarten. Everyone sit on the rug. Hey everyone, welcome to our very first episode of Keeping Up with the Kindergarten. I'm Dana. I'm Nancy. And I'm Kirk. And we're in a tiny, hot little room. It is very warm in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we first just want to introduce ourselves. So, Nancy. I have been teaching at a progressive school in Chicago for just about 10 years now. But I think what's great is that we have been a senior kindergarten team for seven years. And one of the great things about the three of us is that each of us gives a perspective from a different generation. But even though we are of different ages, we have learned to work together as a team. Um, I have taught in public schools before coming to this private school. I am also the child of a teacher. And my children have had a mixture of public and private education. And I bring all that to the table and that has all influenced my teaching as I do it now. I think I would say that I'm a little bit more of a traditional teacher out of the three of us because I have not worked at a progressive school before and just because I am a child of a teacher, my mother has instilled a lot more traditional education in me. All right. How about you, Dana? Oh, well, let me tell how much time do we have? Um, so I have been teaching a little over 20 years and um, not always in progressive schools. My initial experience was in traditional schools and then that felt very wrong to me. So I switched to a progressive school out in LA um, and then came back to a very progressive school here in the Chicagoland area. And um, I have two children. One is in college. One is a high schooler at this point. And um, yeah, they have always been in independent schools. And so I bring to the table that wealth of information. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I would not trade teaching with this team for anything. Kirk, <laughs> talk nice about me. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, what's to say? So my path to teaching um, started as being um, an, on a track team. Uh, I was on a traveling track team for a lot of years um, and was getting ready to age out of that system. And the head coach of that track team said, why don't you try teaching the young kids something about what you know? And I landed uh, in a, on a field teaching five and six-year-olds how to throw shot puts. And Stop it. Yeah. and uh, The right weight? <laughs> they're much tinier shot puts than what I was throwing. Uh, but I realized that working with young kids was something I really enjoyed. And uh, after college, went to grad school, and after grad school, landed at a very, very tiny um, preschool where I taught three-year-olds for a little while and decided that they were far too small. And uh, <laughs> then spent some time teaching in a first and second grade classroom and decided that they were way too old and landed in kindergarten. So it's sort of a Goldilocks shot put story, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been teaching uh, kindergarten for, this will be my mm, 17th year, 
ish. Um, yeah. So together, if we put together all of our teaching experience, we might get into like the 60s, mm -hmm. 60 plus years of teaching experience. Yeah. yeah. So um, you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm impressed that we did all of that without uh, outing anybody's age. There you go. Mm -hmm. There you go. That's mm -hmm. really important too. <laughs> so what's interesting for me when I... Uh, earned my master's in early childhood education. I taught in public schools mm -hmm. in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And then I stayed home for a number of years with my own children. And then when I re-entered the workforce here in Chicago, I taught for uh, a CPS school. And then from there, I went to a small Jewish school for a couple of years. And then now I'm at a progressive school. And just my parenting time with my own children and being exposed to different schools and how they operate it's very interesting to me because I think that um, it's very important that parents learn to advocate for their children mm -hmm. at school because you want your child to get out of the experience what they need. But I think as a parent, you have to really look at your child for who they are and how they learn and not for who you want them to be. I think you have mm -hmm. to be honest about that to make the experience successful. Now, you have three daughters. I do. So how, how did that look different for each of them? Without getting too personal. Right. <laughs> Just because I, I know as I, I have a son and a daughter, and so it was a little easier to sort of, in my mind, separate what one might need versus the other. Right. But it is still hard. You still want to make sure you're advocating and, and helping them advocate. And they're both very different personalities. But with three daughters, I'm wondering like how that looked when you would step in, when you would let them? Well, I think what's interesting for me, I have, I do have three daughters, and I am very proud to say that I now have three college graduating, graduate working <laughs> daughters. <laughs> I have made it. They are all employed. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting when you have your first and only child, and it's just the two of you and how that dynamic works because you treat them a little bit more like a piece of fine china or crystal, and you're so concerned about, everything going their way at school, meaning you don't want them to cry, you don't want them to be upset, you don't necessarily want them to face any conflict. You want mm -hmm. them just to have a perfect experience at school, which mm. in hindsight, of course, is mm. ridiculous, but that's something <laughs> that I had to learn. Mm -hmm. So by the time I had my second daughter, and keep in mind they are six years apart, my first and my second daughter, you learn more that school should be your child's place unless there's a problem that they can't handle. And that's when I would become mm. more involved. Whereas I would say with my first daughter, I was more of a helicopter mom. With the second one, you, you let go a little bit until they really need you. And then with the third one, well, <laughs> <laughs> she was lucky if I remembered to drop her at school. But um, somehow it all worked out. But I think that's part of it is just building that trust with the teacher, building the trust with the school, and you just have to let go a little bit and see mm. how things unfold. Mm -hmm. Because your child is now in a room with, depending on what school, between 20 and 30 children. So you have to have compromise sure. Yeah, as a parent and as a student. And I think that's something that I had to learn. Mm. Yeah, I think I cried at every parent-teacher conference 
for my first child. <laughs> and then <laughs> by the second one, I think I was much more like, uh, unless you call me, I'm going to assume everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And left it at that. So I worry that she maybe didn't get all of my attention. But, <laughs> but she's a very independent kid now. So. Well, I will say I was joking about my, my third daughter, but I will say that I didn't cry at parent-teacher conferences, but I did cry when I would drop her at school, probably for a good week. Mm. And I didn't want to let her see that I was crying, so right. I would drop her off and keep it together, and then I would sob ugly right. tears in my car, and I didn't want to drive <laughs> too far away from the school in case she needed me, but of course they don't need you. When no. you pick them up after you've been miserable all day and worried about them, they're so happy. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's says everything about a school experience if your child happily gets out of the car and goes to school and they're happy to see you. Yeah. But I will caution, sometimes they're not happy to get out because they're going Mm -hmm. to school with a stranger and they don't know this new teacher, new teachers. But you as a parent have to be positive about the experience and show them your excitement and not show them your tears and be like me and wait till they leave and then you cry in the car. Mm -hmm. That's very important. They read your energy. Exactly. They're like little sponges that will soak up not just the words you're saying, but like if you're tense, they're going to be tense. Mm -hmm. If you're panicking, they're going to panic. Right. And I think uh, I haven't had any kids of my own to sort of base that experience on and so it took me a, a really long time to to um, be able to just share that with parents that you know they're gonna they're gonna read you they're gonna read your energy and mm-hmm. I think some of that has come from listening to your story Nancy and listening to your story Dana but also like just going back and talking to my own parents about what parenting me and my siblings was like right and um, I think that's one of the other things I tell parents all the time too is like think about your own upbringing and sort of what worked, what didn't work, what you would change, what you wouldn't change. And instead of thinking about like big knee jerk reactions, Mm -hmm. think smaller, smaller little changes that you might make one way or the other in either direction. And that's probably going to be a a good North star for your own parenting. Um, My mom always tells the story of me sluggishly getting out of the car one day for school and she said, oh, you know, what's wrong? Why don't? Why aren't you happy to be going to school? And I was like, well, I'll go, but only because that's my job. <laughs> and was so, for a month, was so miserable going to school. And they never fed into it. They never, they were just like, yep, that's your job. That's what you do. And then one day my mom was like, you could stay home and clean with me. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but just remembering that, it, you know, it's really, really hard at school. And, and it's not going to be easier if you, the parent, are constantly questioning and interviewing for pain. That sometimes you just got to work your way through a tough mm. time or realize that school's not always going to be a blast and socializing is hard. <laughs> well, we haven't brought up the, the C word. COVID, but I think that we do have to touch on that because a lot of children have been home and with only their parents and only a screen and not had a lot of opportunities to socialize. So I think that we're seeing children have different social skills or different challenges with being in a group. And I think that's something else that we need to dive Mm -hmm. into further Mm -hmm. down the road because that's very important as well. Uh, it might be a good time right now to bring up why we started this podcast. Yeah. So, uh, way back in the pre-COVID times, um, we were noticing that parents were asking us a lot of questions and, 
we teach in three separate classrooms and yet we were fielding a lot of the same questions or questions that were along the same threads and we thought you know there's probably uh, a space where we could put a workshop together and uh, that first workshop way back when it was about oh math games maybe? i think it was actually just about like reading and and uh like spending time with your child or basic skills yeah 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 mm -hmm. uh yeah i think it was like spending easy ways to spend time with your kids yes. at home yeah and so there were some reading things some math games some independent games some improv games mm -hmm. um and those workshops i think were really well received but well received and well attended yeah 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 um, but we did notice it was hard for some parents to show up mm -hmm. um, or that the same families were coming over and over, which was wonderful to see them. But then it felt like we were forming relationships with these families and the families who couldn't make it because of their jobs or because of childcare or what have you. We are missing out on some relationship building. Not to mention that six o'clock is like the bewitching hour for small children correct or so i hear mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. um, you guys have any uh particularly memorable bewitching hour <laughs> stories of your own kids um i'm gonna be that annoying parent and say that my kids never fought <laughs> at, uh bedtime they do now so it's it's backfired now but i i we were very rigid with our bath time, bedtime procedure. Mm. So starting at a certain time, it was dinner, and then it was bath, book, bed. Mm. So much so that when we didn't do that, there there would be tears or yeah. there would be um, upset. And our threat was, if you do not do this right now, you will not get books tonight. <laughs> and then they, they would definitely do it. But um, when they were babies, sure. We had tough times, but once they were sleep trained. Yeah. Those routines. Yeah. We need those routines. Yeah. We had the three B's in my house as well mm -hmm. with the bath, book, and bed. But I remember the bedtime would just get longer and longer. Mm -hmm. We've got to kiss the kiss the dolls. I need water. <laughs> I'm scared. You go through all those things, but once you get into that rhythm, it's great. Mm -hmm. And then what I also looked forward to was on the uh, weekend mornings teaching my children how to get up on their own and not yes. having to rush because I don't need to be awake at 5 a.m. Yeah. for any reason. <laughs> yeah. So teaching them to be yep. independent and self-sufficient as they got older, that was important to After your to me. third Little Bear episode, you can come wake me up. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. In my house growing up, there were tiny uh, sippy cups mm -hmm. of milk in the refrigerator all of the cereal was on the floor of the kitchen cabinet, mm -hmm. so you didn't have to climb up to get anything. And my mom said, don't wake me up. Just go make yourself breakfast. Same, mm -hmm. sort exactly. Of made, made it accessible for us yeah. to, to be independent like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nancy, now that you mentioned like the going to bed part, I my youngest was a little bit of an insomniac, so falling asleep was hard. Mm -hmm. So we would hear her at the top of the stairs and just say no, no, <laughs> <laughs> we hear her turn back. <laughs> but it was the middle of the night that was hard for her, and that was mind numbing. Trying to put a child to sleep at two a.m., knowing that you have to wake up at five a.m. Yes. <laughs> yes. And in those moments, did you think like? 
this is the rest of my life. I, we're never going to make it's it It's never past. getting better. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will never get more than two hours of sleep. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was that mom. Sometimes, depending on which child it was, you might get in bed with them mm-hmm. and get them to go to sleep. And then maybe you're tiptoeing out and they hear you and mm-hmm. then you're tied to the bed when you really want to have your own hour or two of being mm-hmm. an adult and it doesn't happen. Yeah. And then you have to learn from that, like you said, to be very strict Stay with the routine and don't waver from it. Yeah, never. <laughs> never. It's, it's easier to waver from it. Yes. But in the long run, it doesn't pay off. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But it gets better. It gets it better. It gets better. That's and the great part. That was the part of our workshops was it doesn't have to be a struggle all the time. Right. So we started these workshops and then thought uh, we should we should get this into their ears, the parents' ears, and somebody, I don't know who, came up with the idea of a podcast. So we thought, um, not this episode, but the rest of our episodes could maybe be 30 minutes to 45 minutes, and uh, you could put us in your ear while you're on your morning run or running your errands, laughing, people ask you what you're listening to, um, and just get some some advice or just hear from a teacher's perspective what it's like to be with five-year-olds. Absolutely. Because we know it's hard. We know that uh, this is a, a relationship between home and school is a really delicate but important one. And uh, we hope that in the process of listening to us, talk about our experiences both in the classroom and outside of the classroom uh, that there might be some windows and mirrors that open up and uh, some trust as well trust Mm -hmm. and maybe maybe because I know parents talk about teachers and what kind of teacher one person is versus the what? other person. Mm, I've heard what you're all saying about me. Um, and maybe maybe you will get to know us in a different way. And so other parents can listen to this and hear that we are not only a united front, but we're also friends and, uh, and we're good people. We're nice. We are nice. <laughs> and we give it our all. Mm-hmm. Yes. A thousand percent. Now, we have come to a portion of our podcast that we are calling the top 10 things that parents can do to support their child at home. Oh, that was really good. (laughs) Um, We hear a lot of times parents sort of asking us anything we can do at home to support our child or... Um, what are some things that we could do to support what you're doing in the classroom? And those are some great questions. And so we just came up with a list of 10 things that you could do to support your child, both academically and social-emotionally um, at home. So one of the first things, number one, we would like to encourage you to read to your child every day. And by reading to your child, we don't mean having your child read to you like at night in bed when you say that they want to sound out the words on their own or um, you take out the Bob books or things like that that's great but to me and Kirk and Nancy chime in Hmm. to me that feels a little like homework which is something that I would do after school or maybe while I'm cooking dinner I might have them do that but um, at night I know for me 
I know we've already talked about on this podcast, my favorite time of day was curling up next to my kids and reading a book that maybe is a little more difficult than what they could read on their own, um, but not too difficult. Um, And just letting them hear me read and letting them hear the cadence, the way a story unfolds, maybe asking some simple questions or um, asking them about the mood in the book, but um, nothing where they're reading to me because at night I really want them to know how to enjoy a story. Yeah, and I think their bucket is empty at the end of the day. Your bucket is empty at the end of the day. So empty. Nobody really wants to do a whole lot of homework at the end of the night, at the end of a long day. Uh, So yeah, read to your kid. Yes, and let them practice listening to you Mm -hmm. and maybe stop every now and then and ask them some comprehension questions, I'm just saying. It's Mm -hmm. It's just a very soft soft question what's happening what do you think will happen last next tell me what your favorite part is or how is that character feeling right now mm-hmm. it's a good one i agree love it love it mm-hmm. number two encourage your child to write letters and numbers by providing real life opportunities like writing thank you notes or grocery lists or phone numbers i remember being a kid and getting that as Speaking of homework, homework from school was to learn how to write my phone number. And I took pride in memorizing my phone number. Um, Do you still know your phone number from childhood? I do. (laughs) I'm not going to give it here on the podcast, but I do. (laughs) Do you, Nancy? I do, actually. (laughs) Uh, But kids also have a ton, get a ton of practice writing letters uh, and not nearly as much practice writing numbers. And so we want to make sure that they're getting a good balance of both of those things. And remember, you can write every letter and every number by starting at the top. Exactly. And I think it's important that children see their parents write because we're always Mm -hmm. tapping away on our phones and our iPads. But then if they see their parents doing it, then they know that it's important and a life skill to have. So maybe you parents, too, will write down lists or love notes, et cetera. Mm -hmm. One way parents are great is in the lunch boxes the little notes mm-hmm. or the drawings that they make for their kids I used to make drawings for my kids but um, and then like putting little words when they were starting to be readers and they used to feel so proud when they could read the note that I wrote to them mm-hmm. so I think that's like a really because it means something to them mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I my son went off to college last year and I was cleaning his closet he has a whole shoebox. he saved every single lunch note that I made for him and I was like sobbing but (laughs) it was cute to see the progression of pictures to words and well my 22 year old went to Europe this summer and while helping her pack I slipped a note into her beach bag and she sent me a screenshot when she found the note so it's never (laughs) never too late so leave your child notes yeah um I want to talk about environmental print because children can read familiar signs that they see day after day. So when you are driving down the street and your child points out the sign that says Starbucks or Target or Jewel, wherever you frequent, that is a form of reading, as is when they see stop signs and exit signs and up and down. So point those out to your child and read to them. Um, Maybe once they've learned the word stop, because you see the stop sign at the end of your block, 
Maybe you can make the connection with uh, a book that you're reading, such as Last Stop on Market Street. And you can point out the stop sign and then point out the word stop on the book cover and in the story, and then they're making that connection. So once they are familiar with seeing the word a lot in the environment, then point it out to them in a book as well. Also, just read that book. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Don't stop at the cover, but yes, but make, the, make the connections. It's important. Um, and we already sort of touched on the idea of, of n number four, which is um, providing real-life opportunities um, like setting the table or um, we in my house used to use um, sorting socks as a way to learn how to skip count by twos. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea of when you set the table, you count how many people you need and then how many forks you're going to need, how many knives. I used to mess with my kids and say that dad never uses utensils, so just give them a spoon. <laughs> you know, like things. So I think like giving them simple math problems that apply to something they actually have to do um, is a great way to have them experiencing counting and simple math experiences like that. Not to mention just helping out around the house. Oh, God, Integrating some of those life <laughs> skills in there, too. Exactly. Now, Kirk talked about his childhood phone number and writing that down. How many of your children out there know your phone number? We all have cell phones now, so we just push a button and it dials your number, but your child should memorize their home number, your home address, and also develop number sense by maybe pushing the timer on the microwave or watching the mm. gas pump with the numbers going up, 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 and up. <laughs> but just get them to apply that number sense to numbers that they see in everyday life. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're at number six, and that's just to cook and play board games. There's so much math integrated into the everyday life things that we do, like cooking or playing games. And you think about baking cookies, there's so much math involved in a recipe. You need one scoop of this or half a scoop of that. In board games, there's a lot of counting and turn-taking and one-to-one -one correspondence as well. In games like Checkers or Crazy Eights or Monopoly, um, not to mention, again, just some really good experience with taking turns that are built into a lot of those games as well. And maybe if you watch a sporting event as a family, you could talk about the score mm -hmm. and how many more points did Team B win by, just et cetera, et cetera, just using those real-life experiences. Funny story. I had a kid <laughs> early on in my career who was a huge Yankees fan, and every morning he would come in with the newspaper. <laughs> and his first stop was not to me or to any of the other kids in the classroom, but he would make a beeline to the easel and he would paint the Yankees <laughs> score at the every morning. Please tell me it was a year that they made it to the championship. <laughs> he, he was disappointed come October, but uh, it's a memory I'll always have, and I think he will always have, too. Aww. That's really cute. Um, number seven. We are now sort of diving into the idea of the social-emotional well-being of all children. Um, and this one is huge. Please give your child some responsibilities, simple ones, like hanging up their own coat in their backpack, or learning to button and zip their clothing, or picking up their toys and putting their plate in the dishwasher. It may seem super easy, and I know how easy it is just to do it 
for them, especially in the mornings when you're rushing out the door and you just grab their coat and zip it up. But um, that really doesn't help them at recess time when there's 19 of them and we're trying to help them all get out the door to play. Um, if 19 of them don't know how to tie their shoes or button their coat, um, it's gonna take a really long time and they get really frustrated waiting. So they feel really good about being able to button their own coats and zip their own clothing. And then actually, those are the kids that end up helping the other kids. They become helpers because they know how to do it. So it really seems very silly to focus on things like that, but an extra plug I might put in is help them with their car seat. I know that's a scary one because they could pinch their little fingers, but if they know how to put themselves in their own car seat, that not only saves us time in carpool, but it also just makes them feel really responsible for their own well-being. Mm. Uh, and number eight, continuing on that theme of uh, having kids take more responsibility for themselves, is encouraging your children to speak for themselves. Um, we really hope that by the time kids enter kindergarten, they're able to speak to an adult when that adult speaks to them. Um, and not having parents speak for their kids. Uh, we know that in those moments when your child may be shy or reticent, there's an impulse to jump into that silence. But give it a beat. Encourage your kid to speak up for themselves. They're not only learning to do things when they feel nervous, but they're also learning some of those social pragmatics of greeting people uh, and speaking their name when they're spoken to. Uh, encourage your child to make eye contact and listen when other people are talking. Um, you gotta model that behavior too as an adult. And ask your child questions. You know, this is a time that's really fun to talk to your kids. They've got ideas about everything, about how the world works and uh, sort of what they're noticing in the world around them. So ask your child questions. Have conversations with your kids. Yes, that's becoming a lost art, the mm -hmm. art of conversation. Um, for me, my point that I'd like to hit home is about the fact that it is okay to say no. As a parent, you have to hold fast and know that you're not your child's friend. So when you've made a decision and they do not have permission to do something and you say no, it's not a time for your child to bargain with you. You just have to stick to your guns and say no and mean it. And I think as your child gets older, it's important for them to not try to please people and want to do things that maybe other people want them to do that they don't feel comfortable doing. So as a mother of adult children, I also tell them it's always okay to say no and you have to stand firm to your ground. It's just a very important word to use and use it frequently as needed because your child will beg and poke their lip out, maybe cry, try to bargain with you, but stand firm and say no and they will appreciate that you maintained your boundaries. I mean, that's really important too because like you said, when they get older, but I also think in school, we can tell the kids who are used to hearing no and the kids who aren't used to hearing no or who um, whose parents sometimes bend a little bit mm -hmm. because that happens in the classroom and then I'm negotiating with a child mm. to do a have-to-do item. Exactly. And it makes me feel bad for the kid in the way of like they've never had boundaries set for them so that they understand this is a have-to-do item, they have to do it. And so even though it stinks to be the person saying no at home, 
and holding fast to that and hearing the tantrum and you know the tantrums go away and them being upset at hearing no goes away but the skill that they build to hear no stays with them and then they become Mm -hmm. a much more agreeable person in the classroom And with that, we've come to number 10 on our top 10 things that parents can do to support their child at home. And number 10 is now is the time to start talking to your child about identity. When we're talking about identity, we're talking about things like race and gender and class and ability, all those things that make us us. They are as important for us to be talking about with young kids as math or reading or science. Um, In fact, sometimes they're more important because they are the things that uh, are going unspoken in the world around us. And kids tend to fill in the gaps on their own when parents or adults aren't having conversations about those ideas. Uh, So now's the time to tell your child their origin story, your family's origin story. Tell them about their race, about their ethnicity. Give them language uh, that is appropriate, that you feel comfortable with uh, for names for parts of their bodies. Um, What else comes to mind when you think about talking about identity with young kids? Well, I do think you you hit something that I feel like is huge when you said things that you're comfortable with. And I think it's important to say maybe uncomfortable as well mm-hmm. because I think it is <clears throat> really hard as a parent to discuss a lot of these issues with kids and it is hard to know what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate um, and so I think we tend to as adults go to if it feels uncomfortable then maybe it's not appropriate but I don't think that's a hundred percent true so I right. think um, you know first we need to know ourselves and do the work ourselves so that we're much more comfortable speaking to the children about it. But I think you said such a powerful thing by saying that the kids fill in the blanks when we don't talk about it. Right. So if we're not talking about it, they fill in the blank with their own information, but also with the idea that it's somewhat taboo to talk about. And I, as a parent, I never wanted my kids to feel that way because I, I didn't know who they were going to become. Right. And so I always wanted them to know that whoever they were, was 100% okay with me and I wanted to know who they were as their parent and so the idea that I might make them feel that one of their identities is not okay um, was enough to get me talking about it early on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody is expecting you to give a graduate level answer about any facet of identity to a five-year-old. That would be developmentally inappropriate. But uh, what's important is that you've done a little bit of your homework beforehand, before that moment when you get asked that question that you sort of panic to in your head, uh, so that you have what you want to say in five-year-old language to your five-year-old in that moment. Or not even a question, but you hear that comment. Mm. Like, that thing is for girls. Right. Or that sport is for boys. Or... um, you know, when they ask why is that person's skin so dark or just, you know, different questions like that that we normally 
I know if I had asked that question, mm-hmm. <laughs> my parents would have shushed me. But I don't think we're, I think we're past that shushing right. stage now. And, and we can let kids know that their observations are fair. And yeah, they're seeing a lot of differences, but let's talk about them. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about mirrors and windows. And I remember uh, as a child, there was only one doll available that looked like me. And of mm. course, I love that doll. And I had baby DB for so long. <laughs> and that was my favorite doll. And I think it's important that children see mirrors and windows so that when you do see someone with, with darker skin or who looks different, it's not a shock or it's not unusual because they've had many opportunities to have toys and to read books and to see different people. That's just so important. And it doesn't have to be about just your culture or people you know, but let's open up their opportunities just to see lots of different families, lots of different people, lots of different, differently able people mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I think it's scary for parents, for adults in general, but I think it's it's a good fear if we sort of lean into it and we first decide why we're scared and why we think it's inappropriate and then move on from there. Absolutely. All right, my friends, I think uh, that's what we've got for you for 10 things that parents can do to support their child at home. Only 10, and then you're good. You don't have to do anything else. No, you send them off to college. You're done. (laughs) (laughs) We are on to the last segment of our podcast. It's been a long one, but a fun one, hopefully. (laughs) Uh, And we want to look at what's coming next. So, hopefully uh, you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, which was sort of about the first day of school, what to expect. But uh, we're thinking in the future, some other topics could be literacy in kindergarten, how to get your child ready for a progressive play-based environment. Ooh, what does it mean to be a quote-unquote good parent? Ooh, that one might need to be like a (laughs) three-parter. Uh, maybe thinking a little bit about math, but beyond math facts. Mm-hmm. Playdates. <laughs> oh, boy. What do you do on a playdate? <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe struggles with parenting, technology. Maybe thinking about a little bit about identity and mm-hmm. maybe gender and race in, uh, in little people. Mm-hmm. Improv. Yeah, that's my piece. Because <laughs> I think people who improvise are, are going to be uh, changing the world someday. So yeah. mm-hmm. uh, We thought maybe uh, it might be worthwhile di- diving into Keeping Up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. Are other parents doing it? Uh, things you never thought you'd say as a parent. Mm. I imagine that one is uh, mm. full of gems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then maybe when do you need to worry about your child? We talked a little bit about tutoring today, but maybe thinking beyond that. Uh, and then even though it's August right now, we're getting ready to jump into a school year, thinking about summer camp or other activities like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, um, in that vein, we thought it might be worthwhile hearing from the people who listen to this podcast. So, you might be wondering, what are some ways that I can contact these three wizards of kindergarten uh, and ask them some questions or suggest some topics? 
Kirk? Yeah, one way is you can email us directly at keepingupwiththekindergarten at gmail.com. Are we also on social media somewhere? Oh, man, are we? We are on Instagram. We are. How can they find us? Yes. Well, we are at uh, keepingupwith__kdg. Keeping up with underscore KDG. Yes. All lowercase letters. All correct? lowercase letters. Yep. Yep. On Instagram. And on there, you'll see pictures of us and us, <laughs> uh, some videos of us doing this podcast. You get the wizards behind the curtain. Yes. Uh-huh. So stay tuned. Yes. Yes. And uh, feel free to send us questions or ideas for things you'd like to hear us talk about on this podcast. And uh, share us with your friends. Please do. Spread the word. We look forward to working with you and hearing from you and you hearing from us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. And, uh, and hopefully we'll, you'll hear from us soon.